Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 18th, 2019. This is episode 2473 of the Survival Podcast, and it's a Thursday. Usually we do a listener call show today, but what I'm going to do today is a Just Jack show. I've started kind of alternating back and forth with those to get more of the straight-up informational shows uh, like we did way, way back over 11 years ago now when the show first started in the car, and it was really the only thing that I could do on a regular basis. It's kind of what built the show, and, you know, it's one of those things I, I, I really do enjoy uh, kind of just taking subjects and breaking them down for you. One of the things I really, really enjoy doing, though, is... Uh, taking a subject and breaking it out over a series of shows, and that's what we're doing uh, today. We're going part two of what we're calling the Half Acre Homesteading Series. Uh, we did a pretty good series this spring on permaculture, and I guess there is some overlap, but what really was the impetus for this as I started thinking about the fact that the vast majority of, of, of you guys that I get to talk to enough to actually ask about where do you live, live on small properties. Even those of you who have kind of gotten out of the, the, the city life, so to say, even if you're out of suburbia, most of you guys are on properties under an acre. Uh, and, and I'm trying to do this show from the standpoint of people, even with very small postage stamp, you know, 10th acre lots, not necessarily half acre lots, can uh, glean from it and use parts of it as well. And I'll be completely honest, I called it half-acre homesteading because two things. One, just the general ring of the ear, so it's good marketing. And number two, people search for it, so it's good online marketing. Uh, so I don't want to limit it to half-acre, but it's kind of the mindset that we're in here, our, our smaller property homesteading. Last week we talked about gardening, fertility, and storage of the garden's production. Uh, we may come back around to the storage. We kind of did that a little bit quick just to give an overview. So we may do that again in the series and go a little bit more in depth on specific storage methodologies, probably in an episode where we talk about cooking with all this stuff as well. Today we're going to dig into mostly um, animals, small livestock. Uh, we're going to talk about various different small livestock that fit in at half-acre scale and, and, and even below that. Uh, some might push it a little bit. Some may not work for everybody, but I'm going to try to cover enough that something or some portion thereof works for everyone. I want to talk about some of the gotchas, some of the things that people don't think about when all of a sudden they decide they're going to turn their backyard into a mini zoo, uh, some of the really good stuff and some of the not-so-good stuff that needs to be considered before you make the decision to bring a thinking, living, breathing animal onto your property that is we'll discuss today. It's not a pet. Um, a lot of our livestock, I put a lot less effort into taking care of them than I might put into taking care of my dog, but they are a totally different thing. It doesn't matter that there's less direct, general, day-to-day -day effort. Uh, they have needs and they have purposes that are outside of the pet world. And I think that if you're thinking in the lines of these animals are pets, 
then they're not livestock. And if they're livestock, they're not pets. It's one or the other. We'll talk about all of that today and more. Before we do, I just want to remind you guys that episode 2500 is coming up really quick now. Now we're down to less than 25 episodes before we hit episode 2500. I'd really like to, you to be part of it. All you got to do to do this is call in and uh, tell us about some of the changes you've made in your life. Tell us about the way your life is better. Uh, tell us about the things that this podcast has done. Uh, some people I've talked to are like, well, I haven't done that much yet. I've put in like a garden, and I put in a chicken coop, and we moved, and I paid my debt down. It's not all the way gone, but it's in half. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Call it and say that. Some people are like, I'm a little intimidated. Just call in, guys. It's not a big deal. It really isn't. Jot down some bullet points, call in, say, hey, here's the stuff that's happened. And if you if you would for me, let's make it fun, call me a jerk. It is the jerk line. The number is 877-644-1345. As you guys know, I said years and years ago, you'll never call me a jerk and say, you stupid jerk, I paid off my mortgage, and now I have all this extra stupid money I don't know anything to do with. Thanks a lot, jerk. And then some of you guys actually did it as a joke. It became kind of funny, and I thought it would be a great way to commemorate episode 2500. Uh, next, I want to talk about my YouTube channel of the week. I thought it would be fun this week. I got a whole list of channels from you guys, and I'm going to work through them. I really am. Um, uh, of different YouTubers you guys have suggested. Most of it is in the homesteading, uh, prepper type, maybe skills, bushcraft world, and that's fine. I want to reach outside of that, though, and I also want to use it as a chance to expose you guys to some of the channels that, that I really like on YouTube that are just fun, that have nothing to do with preparedness, other than, well, this one maybe a little bit because uh, it does deal with venomous animals. Uh, the channel is called Viper Keeper, and if you've ever seen this guy, this guy keeps some of the most deadly snakes in the world. He has an amazing collection. Uh, he does a lot of handling videos. He shows a lot of these guys up close. Um, if you want to see one that's really kind of crazy, uh, search his channel for desktop fertilances or oh desk, desktop lance heads, uh, which they are fertilances. It's uh, one of the most vicious little bastard snakes in the world that are not the most venomous out there, but they are one of the most um, you don't want to get bit. Let me just put it that way. They're they're quick to bite, and you don't want to deal with the the uh, the, the the tissue damage that they cause. It's like Um, they're like our copperheads on steroids is the best way I could put it. It's, it's, it's not a good thing to be bit. Um, I'm sure he's been bit. He's never been bit on channels since he's been doing this. I've been watching his channel on and off since before I started the podcast. He's been around a long time. He's kind of gooberish, kind of like, you know, a little overweight, nerdy guy. And he talks to the snakes all the time when he's handling them. And anybody that knows anything about snakes, though, they have no ears and they can't hear you. Uh, one thing I want you to understand about that is someone that's done a lot of work with snakes myself. When you talk to an animal like a snake that you know can't hear you, you're doing it as much for you as for them. Number one, they're reading your energy, and by doing that, you're creating this calm interrelationship uh, that makes it easier for that snake to, to relax. Uh, it also makes it easier for you to relax, and it keeps you paying attention to what they're doing. If you're having a conversation with something, you're not turning your head away from it. You're not taking something for granted, things like that. So it's actually a very useful component of the technique, even though the animal can't actually hear it. But it's a pretty cool channel. Again, it's called Viper Keeper. He is a bit gooberish, but I think you'll find it quite entertaining. With that, let's dig into today's, uh, today's piece on half-acre homesteading as we continue this series, which I'm thinking is going to go four to five episodes, possibly six, but I think... Four to five is, is most likely.
And again, today we're talking about small livestock, and we've talked about all of these things over the years in different aspects. I mean, uh, we're going to talk about quail as one of the choices today. And for instance, I have a, a Q&A on quail. I'd done a couple episodes on quail, and then I did a Q&A. It was over three hours long where I answered, I think it was like 40 questions on quail. So basically, we have every piece of information you could want on quail keeping. We have tons on rabbits and ducks, chickens and turkeys, uh, pigeons, all, worms, all the stuff we're going to talk about today. There's info on the site if you want to get deeper into it. So we're going to talk more about the higher-level thinking uh, behind these and where they fit in and where they don't, especially on small properties. But I want to start out with why the hell we would do this in the first place. See, I think there's a lot of people that, well, I want to start homesteading, so I'm going to get chickens because homesteaders have chickens. Uh, I think it's better to understand what, what animals can do for us, what they can provide for us, then evaluate all of the animals that possibly fit in this, this, this concept uh, for you. So I, I do want you to understand that even though I'm doing this on half-acre homesteading, and even though I'm saying that if you have five acres or three like me, And you can do significantly more than we talk about in this. These things can work for you, but if you wanted to do sheep or goats because you hate your life or whatever, or a cow or something like that because you have the land for it, I, I'm not opposed to that, right? These things that we're talking about here today, they work on small properties, at least some small properties. You might find in some places you just can't do ducks, like they're out of the question. You might find some places you can't do chickens because there's ordinances against it but one way or another you can find some piece of this that works and the best way to get there though again i think is to say well what do we get why do we do this like you know you don't get that much out of keeping a chicken from a standpoint of entertainment they're kind of entertaining but in the end uh you could probably find better ways to gain your entertainment entertainment's a byproduct so the first thing that i feel we get specifically on an ROI basis, like the, for the amount of work I have to do, how much do I get back is caloric density. Uh, the caloric density of how much yield you get in food for humans uh, of, a, of an egg uh, from a chicken or a duck or, let's say, from four quail's eggs uh, is, is astronomical compared to the fact that to get that, once your system's set up, You know, you basically have to make sure that their food bowl stays full and their water stays available. There is some other parts of the care to that, but in general, that's the biggest thing. And a, a tremendous amount of that can be automated. And once you get an animal that's an egg layer producing, they have a known schedule and they can produce a lot. And even a very small flock can often outproduce the needs of a family during its heavy time of year. And as they ebb off during molts and lower production times, a lot of that can be put up. And, and you know, eggs can be uh, broken up into like four packs and then lightly scrambled, put in a bag and frozen. Taken out and used when you don't have eggs available, things like that. So they have, to me, the caloric density is incredibly high, especially compared to the the amount of effort that you have to do to get that. Uh, you can have drought, you can have bad years, you can have good years with your vegetation. Uh, as long as the chicken's getting enough feed and water, it's going to produce eggs for its egg-laying life. Uh, and, and a meat animal, we're going to talk a little bit about, it's crazy it's going to sound at first, turkeys today. You know, you can feed a turkey for four to six months, and you can end up with 20 pounds of meat. And if you look at grocery store costs against that, it's it's kind of amazing what animals do compared to a tomato plant. All right. The next is it's not just the caloric density, but it's the type of nutrient. You have um, three 
primary types of nutrients, right, before we go into our micronutrients. Uh, those are protein, fat, um, and carbohydrate. Those are your macronutrients. And what you can generally grow from a standpoint of vegetation is a whole lot of micronutrients, minerals, right, and a whole lot, in some instances, of carbohydrates, So a lot of the things that we, we grow are actually a pretty poor caloric yield, but there can be a lot of nutrient density and flavor, eggplant, tomatoes, peppers, uh, your, your three big nightshades that everybody grows we talked about last week. Those do not have high caloric yields. Um, they have a little bit of carbohydrate, a little tiny itty-bitty like ass level of protein, no real fat at all. Um, but they have a good micronutrient. They are nutrient-dense food when they're grown in very fertile systems. If we want calories out of a garden, we need to grow things like potatoes and sweet potatoes and certain grains and things like that. We can get a higher caloric yield, but we're going to get mostly uh, a carbohydrate yield. There are some protein things that can be grown Most of the things that have a higher protein yield, though, are more of an agricultural than a homesteading crop, and they don't really fit in well to the backyard on a meaningful level. The closest we can get would be mostly legumes, you know, beans and things like that, and still there's a limit to how much we can, we can create with that. So we can produce both protein and, to some degree, fat with animals, and fat is incredibly valuable to the human diet. And it is something that when it's in short supply, uh, it's a big deal. If you want to kind of get a feel for how big a deal it is and how much we take it for granted, check out a BBC series uh, called Wartime Farm that's available on YouTube. You can watch the whole thing for free. And they go over what it was like to live on a farm in, in Britain during World War II and the rationing and uh, how the farms were managed and how they would actually take your farm if you weren't producing enough food because the whole entire island was short on food. And they show how much fat a family was given for a week. And when you start thinking about all the things that fat gets used for, you realize how much we take inexpensive fat for granted today. Yes, you can grow fat in the form of vegetation, but on a half acre in the suburbs, working a day job, you're not going to get very much out of it. You know, how, how much, how much uh, radish seed oil are you going to get or black oil, sunflower seed oil can you really produce at a meaningful level? But those chickens can be fattened up. That, that, that run of meat chickens can be fattened up. Ducks, you can run your fat from ducks. It's not a tremendous amount, but it's the easiest fat we can produce on the small homestead. Next up is that they build fertility and eliminate waste for us. Um, so the chicken then being the classic example that we can basically give everything that we don't eat to the chicken. We can put it in some sort of a bin the chickens can get in. They kind of have to climb out of so they don't throw it everywhere. And once they do that for a while, we just take it away and start filling up another bin. And in time, they will build us incredibly valuable compost that way so we can build fertility. Uh, if we have rabbits, just collecting their manure probably makes it worth keeping a rabbit or two, especially if you don't have any other animals in your system. Uh, it's probably worth keeping some rabbits for the manure alone, even if they are, you know, quote-unquote pets, even though I'm going to say that they're not. Uh, so they have a definite ability to, to build fertility. And, again, some of them, uh, we're not going to go into pigs today, but small pigs, uh, chickens, especially ducks to a degree, uh, really have an ability to be waste eliminators. When we first moved here and we built up first a flock of chickens before we got into ducks, 
we realized that if we went out to eat, we, we literally left nothing on the table. Like a lot of stuff that we would just leave behind because we're not going to eat it at home. You know, we'd ask for a second box. We'd cram extra, ch if there was a Mexican restaurant, chips. Didn't matter what a salad, you know, it didn't matter. It went home with the chickens. It went in the chicken trough, uh, their, their compost bin, and they either ate it or they dug it into everything and they made it into compost for us. So fertility and waste elimination are, are big things that livestock can do for us. And then it's kind of the same thing, but it really can be done totally different, is animals can provide labor. And, I mean, you can think of the classic of the, the you know, the, the, the mule turning a, a, a stone or something like that. And I, I don't mean it that way. I mean weeding and pest control and things like that. If we take and we build a small chicken tractor and we do a meat chicken run, we can move those chickens through a specific area. And while they're doing what they naturally do, they're tilling the soil, they're, they're eating weeds, they're breaking up pest cycles, they're doing all of those things for us. Uh, if you're in an area big enough that you can free range, they will do some grazing and insect control that way, etc. To get really good labor out of them, they have to be controlled. You have to manage where they are and when they're there and for how long. Um, but, you know, Jeff Lawton has used chickens and tractors to completely build from scratch, starting with raw earth, food forests. So if they can do that, we can then manage them through our system to get a labor yield out of them. Uh, Sepp Holzer once famously said to a person that he was, talk he was talking about building a much bigger system than we're talking about here, and Sepp said, put pigs in the system so that you don't have to worry about the weeding that the guy was complaining that he would have to do if he did something the way Sepp said. And the guy said he didn't want pigs. And what Sepp said was, if you do not want to do the pig, if you do not want pigs, then you will have to do the pig's job. So it's up to you who does it, but if you're not going to have the animal and something needs doing that an animal does, it's going to fall on you. I think with small homesteads, it's a little bit less of a concern, but it's still a valid way to look at things. Next, let's chat about things you, you really, I say it this way in the notes, you better just accept these things. If you can't accept these things, you probably shouldn't do this yet, okay? Uh, I hate to tell anybody what they should and shouldn't do. But I'm not telling you what you were allowed to do or you, you can't do it or whatever. Like, you're going to make your own decision. You're a grown-ass adult. But I'm saying from my advice, if you can't get past these six things and, and accommodate them in your life and in your mind, you're probably not really ready to do this yet, and you'll probably regret it. So number one is you, you better accept that you're going to kill some of these animals. Okay? They're going to die, and it's going to be because you did something or you didn't do something, right? It's going to, that's what it's going to be. Some will be accidental, and the other is some are going to be on purpose. If you live in a small homestead and you can have a flock of, let's say, four laying hens, uh, you're going to get about two and a half years, if you get them as chicks, and if you get them as pullets and older adults that are about ready to lay, about two seasons or two years out of them, You can really kind of milk them through a third with egg production, but, I mean, just to explain it to you, a chicken is born with a, like, just like a woman, a human woman is born with, with a fixed number of eggs, and they'll ovulate a certain number of times, and then they'll go through something called menopause, where they no longer produce a, a fertile egg in their cycle, and they can't have children anymore. Chickens have ovums they have a thousand ovums that's how it's i'm not making that up either that is literally the number a chicken is born with a thousand ovum and it will produce let's say 300 eggs a year 
for two years. That's 600 eggs. That's 60% gone. That chicken can live a much longer life than you think it can, so it's going to go through, people mockingly call it henopause, where it will just drastically reduce the number of eggs that it can lay, that it will, that it will lay. And then after a third season, that number will have yet again, and you'll not get enough eggs out of a chicken that's over three years old for you to justify the cost of feeding it. So at, at, at least by the third year, and probably for most people by the second, in commercial operations, they run those chickens for one laying season and they're slaughtered. And they're either going to some sort of low-level food product for humans or they're going to a dog food factory. Because that bird's no longer worth it. And if you think about it, this is one of the reasons that you might consider other things for egg-laying needs. You have to feed that bird for six months before it can feed a first egg. And then you get maybe three seasons out of it, depending on what it is. And this is why when we get to chickens we'll talk about, you might be better off picking a bird that is less productive than more productive because you probably don't need an egg a day, 360 days a year. You're probably better off with a bird that gives you 220 eggs a year and gives you three, maybe four seasons where they're worth having. But you're going to have to get to a point where, like, hey, This animal is no longer productive, and if you want to continue production, it has to go away, and the best place for it to go is probably a stew pot. Because believe it or not, there's not a whole lot of people out there waiting to adopt chickens that are not productive anymore. And if you want a meat yield, there's only one way to get it. So you have to accept the fact of life and death, both due to inexperience and mistake, to, due to things that just happen. A predator gets in that you didn't foresee, even if you thought you did everything right. Uh, you fed it the wrong thing. I mean, you lose animals. Sometimes they just die. And if you're not ready to accept that animals are going to die under your care and at your hands at times, it's probably not worth doing. Uh, number two is they tie you to your property. It's really easy to automate a garden, walk away, leave for a week and come back, and everything's pretty much okay. Living, breathing creatures need food and water every day. They need oversight, and things can and will go wrong. So when you leave for more than a day, you're going to need a higher level of caretaker to watch your place. And the more you have, the more you'll need, and the more skill that person will have to have. That's a pretty short one, but it's something people don't think about. All of a sudden, you have these chickens. And so you either need to really accept that, or you need to confine the amount, the quantity, and the methodology by which they're kept to give yourself the flexibility to still be able to get away. Next, you absolutely need to set your infrastructure up first or you will hate your life. So if you're going to keep chickens in a coop, you need to set up a coop before you get a chicken. Uh, a coop and a run system, then you need a coop and a run. If you want chicken tractors, you need a chicken tractor. Whatever it is that you're going to use as a means of dealing with these animals Get it in place first. That doesn't mean it has to be perfect, and it doesn't mean you won't change and adapt over time. Both of those things are going to be the case. It's not going to be perfect, and you are going to change and adapt over time. But you better have a base-level solution in place before you get the animal, because this is what inevitably happens. People decide they want to do this. Maybe they finally get to a place where they can in their life or by moving to a property, and they're thinking we probably are going to get chickens this year, and then they make the mistake, and they go to the feed store, or tractor supply, Atwood, something like that, and they're walking around, and they hear... Beep, 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 beep. And, oh, they go look and the kid holds the little bird. And, oh, my God, the chickens are, we got to get chickens. And the, I don't know what to do. Yeah, it'll be all right. And then the chickens are home in a box. And then you're feeding the chickens. And next thing you know, the chickens are big enough to be out there. And we're still trying to figure out what to do with them. 
So we just let the chickens out, and then they go tear the rose bushes, uh, uh, the, all the dirt off the rose bushes uh, roots, and they die because we weren't ready. Uh, they're over the fence, and they're in the neighbors, and they're crapping on cars and stuff like that. So we need to make sure that we have the infrastructure in place before we get them. And we need to accept that confinement is necessary. I know everybody wants to hear the, the, the anthem of born free in their mind and my birds are not going to be like the birds or my animals are not going to be like the animals in the confinement systems and all. Um, when you are on a half acre or less, you need confinement. It is the easiest solution. You either need to confine or you need to exclude. And you'll find that the amount of stuff you want to exclude will be a lot. And it will be a lot less work and a lot easier, and things will look a lot better aesthetically if we can find the animal versus setting the animal free with exclusionaries. When we exclude, what we end up with then is wherever we didn't exclude, we end up with lots of poop, lots of digging, lots of problems. So when we're looking in these, these backyard systems with chickens or any animal, we're probably looking at hutches or tractors, coop-and-run setups, things like that. There are some exceptions. We'll talk about that in a bit. Obviously, we're talking about fish today a little bit. Like, you can't set a fish free in the backyard, right? Unless you're at your backyard's a lake. Then, then it's a natural thing, and it's not even really livestock anymore. So we're going to need confinement-based systems within our infrastructure. Next, I've said this already, but they are not pets. They are not pets. They are not pets. They are not pets. I will give you a pass. If you have pet rabbits that you happen to use their manure, okay, everything else is not a pet. Your quail are not pets, they are livestock. Your chickens are not pets, they are livestock. Your ducks are livestock. Bees are livestock. Right? Even your worms, you need to think of them like livestock for a couple reasons. One, you don't want to be overly attached to them. You just don't. I know you're, gonna get, you're not going to get overly attached to 60,000 bees in a box. Okay, That's easy, but it's easy to get too attached to a, a rabbit or a chicken or something that at some point may need to be converted to freezers, freezer camp. They have to go to freezer camp. We don't want to think of them like pets. We also need to think of them differently. I know that we get real benefits out of my great big beast dog, my Charlie Daniels pit bull pointer that I'm petting with my foot right now while I'm doing this. The fact that he's here makes me happy because he's a pet. He defends my home. He defends my kids, right? He defends my animals. He keeps the ducks off the porch so they don't crap on the porch. He does benefit me, but I don't think of him like livestock. He is a family member. He is a pet. If I have to put more money into him this year at the vet than he is worth in output, I will do it because he's a pet. If I have a chicken that can make me... $100 worth of eggs in the next two years and it would take a $200 vet visit to save this chicken the chicken is going in the crock pot it is livestock it is not a pet you see what I'm saying and so I am. A, it is not just about not getting attached it's also about an evaluation what does this animal do for me what does it produce for me what does it What is the labor output? What is the, the, the fertility output? All of the things. What is it giving me? And when it starts to be a financial loss, it becomes food. That's what livestock is. 
it either goes to someone else who has a different use for it, or it goes to the freezer or the pressure cooker. That's where it goes. And again, I, I really think if you can't accept that, that you're probably not in the right place in your mind for doing this just yet. I know that sounds harsh, but it's... Um, on top of that, if, like most of us, you have pets, cats, dogs, etc., they're going to need control mechanisms. Whether those control mechanisms are fencing to keep them from eating your other animals, training, what have you, it is not reasonable that you bring some chickens that you let run wild in your backyard into a house with a dog that's six years old has never been around other animals before and are angry that the dog tries to kill the chickens. Of course it does. Of course it does. So you either need to train the animal or you need to set the situation up where the animal can't get to the birds, that type of thing. And then you probably still need training. I recently had somebody on me we asked me about this. I have these chickens. They live in a chicken run. They're fine. The dog can't get to them, but they don't lay any eggs because the dog works them up all the time. So they're so stressed, they're not producing. The dog went away for a week. The chicken started laying eggs. The dog came back. The chickens stopped laying eggs. I know that's what it is. You have to train the dog. Easiest thing is a shock collar. Dog starts harassing the chickens. Dog gets a shock, and you say no until the dog gets the feeling that the, the birds are lightning birds. And they need to be left alone, and the dog will do dog things without bothering the chickens anymore. You know, you can do it the short way, the long way, however, but the animals that are your pets, that have prey drive, are going to need control mechanisms, whether it's training or infrastructure of their own. Easiest thing is to start with pups. When you introduce pups to livestock, when they're too small to actually damage the livestock, they tend to, by the time they are, they've already accepted that as this is part of the family. All right? Uh, so let's move on to the stuff that I have for you. And I got four, eight, nine uh, different items of livestock that we're going to talk about today. I'm going to try to talk about the good, the bad, and the proper place and the proper mindset for them. Number one is quail. I think that the quail, if you can develop the right system of keeping them for your needs, is probably the most productive thing from a standpoint of eggs and meat, and I would just say a protein production system that the small homesteader can do. I think it exceeds everything else, and and here's why. Uh, when, a, when quail lay eggs, if you incubate that egg in 21 days, you have a little quail about the size of a golf ball. In six weeks, you have a small quail that is a perfect quail for butchering. In seven weeks, if we don't butcher that quail and it is a female, it will start laying eggs. If we maintain a photo period, that's how long there's light, right, of 14-10, a minimum 14 hours of light and 10 hours of darkness, and we make sure they're fed and watered well, we will get about one egg a day per quail almost year-round, Okay. At the end of, of that cycle, they'll go into their first molt. We can cull them and move them to meat. They're going to freezer camp, pressure cooker camp, whatever you want to call it, quail curry, you name it. They're tougher birds, but they're very, very good. They just need to be cooked a little bit differently than our young birds. Because we only need seven weeks for the next group, their offspring can already be seven weeks old and how already started laying their first eggs before they go away. So we can have a continuous production system of both meat and eggs from quail. 
there is nothing else with that timeline, with that regularity, the ease of keeping, and the ability to keep in small spaces. Nothing else. This is why they have been a staple in China and Japan for over 2,000 years. Because anybody anywhere can do this. The ROI versus the amount of feed that they use is insane. Um, Brad Davies, Moon Valley Prepper, we had him on the show in the past. He has a one-car garage in, uh, I think it's in Michigan. Uh, and in, in that one little garage with a couple stacks, he's producing something like 20,000 eggs a year and something like over 1,000 meat quail. I mean... Where what else does that? And the answer is nothing. Is a stack system the best way to go? It depends. Um, lots of people are doing quail with some level of a quail tractor type thing. It works really well. I do them in an aviary. It's worked great until last week. Last week, in spite of everything I did to make that aviary predator-proof, I am almost 100% positive a rat snake got in there and ate, I think at this point, all my quail. There were two left this weekend. There were 20 a week ago. So they are small. So, you know, we have rat snakes getting a chicken coop all the time, and even the bantam chickens, they're not eating a bantam chicken. It's just not happening, right? But a quail, they will eat a quail, especially without any bigger animal to protect them and, and, and fend them off or whatever. So the snakes get in your chicken coop, they eat your eggs. Snakes get in your quail cage, and they eat your quail. So... That's kind of about the, the only real downside. Um, just a fantastic animal, and I think that you should look at those if you want a meat yield specifically. The eggs are almost a byproduct. On an egg yield, you're looking at about four quail eggs make up one good-sized chicken or duck egg. Uh, easiest way to cook them, if you want to cook them with uh, you know, like runny yolks, uh, you get the ring top from a large um, ball jar, the large ball jar ring size. I put a little oil on the inside of it, set it down, crack four quail eggs into it, and they'll cook like one big egg with four little yolks instead of one big yolk. Really, really tasty, great animals. Not much use for waste disposal, excellent for fertility, especially in a rack system where you have an under tray, put wood chips in there, that keeps the stink down. We'll talk about worms later, but I mean the best interconnected system, with, then you have a worm bin, The wood chips go in the worm bin. The tray goes back with new wood chips. That has to happen every few days. They are a bit high maintenance on the level of waste production. Um, they pretty much are seed and grain eaters. Even with tractoring, they're not going to do much for insects. They're not going to do a lot of scratching. Uh, they need a dust bath, things like that. If you want to know more, look up quail on the site. Tons of information. Next up is rabbits. Rabbits are probably the best pure meat production system that are available in, you know, being doable for the most people. Uh, I don't remember exactly what it is, but I believe it's that a, a buck rabbit and two does, so one male, two females, run in a proper system, a hutch system, with growing out meat bunnies, can produce as much or more meat in a single year than a purpose meat bred goat. So I'm not talking about your little goats that eventually you eat. I'm talking about like a boar goat or something like that. You get more meat from a trio of rabbits than, than raising a single meat goat can every year. And I believe it's significantly more. I mean, it's, I believe it's in the neighborhood of over 200 pounds of meat. 
which would be, you know, three average deer when you actually look at yield of meat. So they have a great meat yield, uh, and they have one of the best manures for fertility you can get because there is no need to do anything to rabbit manure before you use it as fertilizer. It can go straight to your garden. Worms will eat it. They'll make wonderful castings. Insects will break it down. Uh, it'll get broken down just from being wet and in the mulch and everything, but it will not burn. It's not a health risk. It is, it is a perfect uh compost as it is it also will go fine in a, a worm bed um the, the other side though is rabbit urine is is uh it can cause extensive corrosion you have to have a way for urine to be gotten rid of because uh, if they pee on certain like metal it'll literally disintegrate metal in time uh i've never kept rabbits so uh, the rabbit information unlike most of this is somewhat secondhand but that's my understanding um i i think that the The thing that you can get out of rabbits, again, is a high meat production. Uh, they can be, and we're not talking about much about this today, but they can be a monetary yield. I think if you want to make money on rabbits, there's more money in raising rabbits that are pretty rabbits that people want to also raise and selling them bunnies uh, than there is in raising rabbits for meat and trying to sell rabbit meat. If you're making meat, I think you're on a homestead scale, especially if you're making meat for you. Um, the meat quality is exceptional. It, people, you know, The, the, the whole it tastes like chicken thing. The reason people say it tastes like chicken is because if you haven't had it, everybody's had chicken, and it's the closest thing. You can give me a piece of rabbit and a piece of chicken. I can tell you the difference. I'll tell you that right now. Um, but it is very similar. It's a white meat. It's lean. Uh, but to me, it is is far superior to chicken. I am not a big liver eater, uh, but I have to say that rabbit liver is is just amazing i don't know what makes it so much different than other animals because uh, if you think about it diet's not that much different than a cow or whatever but rabbit liver is amazing so it's like a little extra delicacy there so the rabbit you know you've got a fur yield as well uh, a pelt yield uh, and it's quiet you won't find many places yet where you can't own rabbits due to ordinances or laws there are some places where they might say you can't kill and eat your own rabbits but if you keep your mouth shut who knows That type of thing. Next up today is the chicken, the number one animal that everybody wants to rely on. I think the chicken is great if it's doable for you. I think in most situations where, like, you can see three neighbors from your backyard, you are almost inevitably going to have an easier life if you run a coop-and-run operation. And Paul Wheaton can bitch about it all he wants, and that's evil to the chickens or whatever, chicken Nazi, I don't know. Uh, it's It's been done... Uh, successfully with healthy animals and healthy yields for, you know, ever in a day in this country. It was the original component to the Victory Garden where you put the coop in one place and two runs and you garden on one side one year and then you switch it and the chickens go where the garden was this year and they go on the other side of the next year. Uh, it works beautifully and I think either that or tractoring uh, with some sort of mobile coop. And I think, you know, Uh, a lot of people talk about how you can only have like you know two chickens or four chickens if you're in the suburbs or whatever because of ordinances. I think it's a really great number. About four hens is a really great number. And so the, you know then you're looking primarily as a meat. I'm sorry, as, a, as an egg production system, you have the best fertility, labor, pest control, and waste elimination system out of all of these things. I think you can get. Uh, I love ducks for what they do to insects. 
but they don't scratch, which can be a real advantage depending on how you're managing them. But the other thing is they um, they just really aren't, because they don't scratch, they're not really good composters. You know, Your chickens, you can set up a coop and a run and a compost pit for them, and all that waste goes in there. And like I said, when it gets to where it's pretty full, you just start putting stuff in another bin. Take that one away, let it sit for a couple of months, and you have the most amazing compost, and you've done no work. And now you've got that fertility output. As a meat animal, um, I am fine. Like I said, you're going to have to get to a point where you know Henrietta and her sisters are just too old and they're not productive. And it would be better if you realized that time was coming about six months in advance and you go get Henrietta Jr. and her three sisters and you have them starting. So for a little while you're cheating, you have eight. And as soon as the youngins start laying, the old ones become stewing chickens. That's fine. But I don't really see that as a, a direct, dependable meat yield. That's something that we're doing every three to four years because from a just a management standpoint, we kind of have to. Um, if you want chickens for meat, then honestly the best option is tractoring, you know, whatever number works for you, Cornish Cross. Especially in a small property like this, um, you know, you're not worried about trying to raise 500 of them and sell them at market, so you don't need to go with the uh, like the ones Darby Simpson uses. I can't remember what they are, but there's like a white cross bird, but it's it's a lot more active and what have you. It's actually kind of good in small environments that you have these birds, and they really don't want to go anywhere. They're going to have it, you know, eight weeks of it, pretty good, about as good as they would ever have it as a Cornish cross, and then they're going to graduate, go to freezer camp or what have you. Um, it's okay. I know some of you guys have written me and said, you know, I have half acre in the city and I raise 20 chickens every year and it goes perfectly. I think for a lot of you, I'm going to give you a better option here in just a, in a, just a minute. Uh, but if you're doing chickens for meat, I think you're either doing it that way or you're really not doing it for meat. You're going to buy product. However, you know, there is the old school concept on chickens. Chickens are chickens, meat's meat. Not every chicken has to be, you know, worthy of being deep fried. Uh, and some people simply have the ability to have a rooster, and they have a small flock, maybe half a dozen birds, they hatch their own, uh, maybe they let some of the females be replacements, and they eat all the roosters, you know, and they eat, you know, and they, you know, they grow these pullets up till they're about 14, 16 weeks, and they don't really care about a fast return, they're not marketing the bird, and they don't really care that it has a a smaller breast and larger thighs, and they go ahead and they use that as a meat yield, and that's fine too. I just don't think it is going to work for the majority of people. Next up is ducks. Um, the good news with ducks is there are some really serviceable dual-purpose animals. Um, as some of the older breeds, the larger body breeds, uh, are really suited for it. Uh, these would be Rowan is a decent one. Uh, but they're really just not that big. But they're a good dual-purpose bird. But breeds like uh, Silver Apple Yard uh, are just a fan because they're a bigger-bodied bird. And they make a really great dual-purpose bird. So, And then the quality of the meat from, of a duck versus a chicken is just huge, in my opinion. So ducks are probably a better animal for kind of that dual-purpose need if you want to do it. But for a small homestead, it's, it's going to be difficult to compete with the quail. Very, very difficult. What ducks are is a tremendous source of nutrient-dense eggs. If, if I'm not going to go deep into it today, but if you just look it up and you look at the 
the nutritional value, calories, fat, protein, etc., in a duck egg versus a chicken egg, it is, it is, you know, it's not even apples to orange. It's like apples to steak. It, it, it's that dramatically different. Um, ducks don't scratch much. They eat all kinds of crap, though. They pull on things. They poop on things. They turn everything into a mud hole. They make little mud holes. So you, you need to have some sort of control mechanism for them like you would anything else. And you need to realize they're going to do a different type of disservice to your land. Um, so in a small environment, what I've seen work best is kind of like big aviary type thing. And wherever the water is, the water's over some sort of a grate. That grate has a drain. It goes somewhere that somewhere deals with the excess nutrient in some way, whether it's a, a reed bed or it's a composting pit that's managed by chickens or something. Because if you just have a coop and run for, for ducks like you do with chickens, you're going to have to water that they can bathe in. And if you just dump that water in the same spot every day, it's going to end up stinky, nasty, compacted, and no vegetation. Ask me how I know. Right, because I was running 200 damn near at one time ducks, and so that was just with them being confined overnight, and we had to end up with eight different places to put bathing water at night, so that we were dumping one to a spot each eight days, and then we did trenches and uh, willow trees and stuff like that to take up the nutrient. With a you know four ducks, six ducks like you'd have in a small system, it's not as big a deal, but they're going to do it. So. I don't want to go too deep into it. I just want to say you have to account for that. And then the damn things are noisy. They quack a lot. Unlike chickens, they're very noisy. The trade-off would be muscovy ducks. Muscovies are quiet. They fly, though. I mean, not a little bit either. Like, they can fly for miles if they want to. If you have a drake and females and you clip the wings of your females, the drakes will not leave. You won't have to worry about the fact that they can fly. They will stay with the girls. They're very quiet. They make kind of a, like almost like a dog panting sound and a hiss sound, sort of like a goose. The meat is like baby beef. It's some of the best meat you will ever eat. And the eggs are just as good as uh, uh, mallard breed ducks, which all the other domestic ducks come from the mallard. Uh, the problem, if it's a problem, they will give you like ridiculous amounts of eggs for two periods a year, early spring and midsummer. There'll be a little fall-off in the middle where there'll be no eggs, and then they just don't give you any more eggs. So you'll get like 120 to 160 eggs from a Muscovy in a season. But you will get them all at once. So if that doesn't work for you, that's something to know. Fantastic mothers, great at going broody. So if you want something dual purpose with a larger meat yield, they're great. And the drakes are large. I mean, you're talking 11, 12-pound birds. All right. If you want meat production on a homestead, and if you can do it, what can't be beat for it is turkeys. And I know that may sound kind of crazy having some big turkey farm in the city, but I want to put it to you maybe a different way. I want you to think about it this way. You could raise a dozen chickens. Um, they'll take about eight to ten weeks once you get them outdoors. They will give you a carcass weight of four to six pounds. So if you raise, let's say 10, let's say 10, uh, you're going to have 40 to 60 pounds of chicken. But that's all the bones and everything that's part of the carcass weight. You're going to have a meat yield that's significantly lower, maybe 30 pounds, three pounds of actual flesh per chicken. And 
you will have to move them daily, blah, 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 blah. And if you want more, you just have to raise more. And for every three pounds of meat you want more, you need another complete chicken. Okay? You could get something, and even to make your life easy and not hate your life with fighting and stuff like that, go all females, which is probably what I'm going to do next year, just myself, and maybe more than I'm going to advise you to do, though. Uh, and do, let's say, six broad-breasted bronze hens. They'll take about six months to grow out. So it's got kind of a time commitment to it. They're just annoying enough that by the time it is time for them to go, you will not feel bad about them going away. You really won't. If you have six female broad-breasted bronze that are six months old, so you've had them out in your property for 180 days, you will find an average carcass weight. I'm not talking about live weight. An average carcass weight from the hens of about 24 pounds. We've had the hens as heavy as 29 pounds, and our lightest one ever was like 21. So I'm being, I'm being soft on the, on the 22 to 24 pound range. Most of that will be meat. I mean, you're talking, if you bone one half of a breast off of a female, you're usually looking at about a five-pound breast cutlet. So, you know, take that by six, even, and you're looking at 30 pounds of breast meat. And not, you know, we think of turkey as the Thanksgiving bird and blah, blah, blah. We cook a whole turkey. First of all, one of these things, when, they're, when they grow out fully, they won't fit in the oven whole. They really won't. Um, you're going to have to part them out. But if we start thinking about more of portioning out meal-sized portions, for a lot of families, you know, that's about a pound of meat. So if you have one female bird and she gives you, um, let's say, six pounds of breast meat, and actually it tends to be significantly more. I think I screwed the math up there. The biggest one I ever had was nine. That was a tom, though. Say so your females are about four. About four pounds, four to five pound average. So let's say you have a female turkey and she gives you eight pounds of breast meat. Well, there's eight one pound portions. You still have the thighs, you still have the drumsticks, you still have the back, you still have the bone for making stock. I mean, it is a significant amount. The, the, the necks on these things are a meal. So they may not work where you are, but if they do, There's nothing you can do with the limited amount of work. They are stupid when they're pulsed. That's what you call a chick, a turkey when it's a chick, a little baby is a pult. They're stupid. It takes a while till they learn how to eat. It takes a while before they learn how to stop killing themselves. By the time they are about five weeks old on up, unless you accidentally step on one or a dog kills it, they are like little Mack trucks. They've gotten past the stupid stage. They still do dumb things, but they know what they know well. And they don't die unless you get toms, and they might kill each other. So that's why I recommend females, especially in small homesteads. You can tractor them. You can use electro-net to move them around. Uh, again, can you? Is it legal? Will the Department of Making you and All that you got to work out. But if you can do them, they are the easiest meat you will ever raise. Fish. To me, fish is the second easiest meat you will ever raise, and it's probably easier than the turkeys. 
Uh, it can be hiding in plain sight. Nobody cares. You just the yields are nowhere near in comparison to what you get off a of turkey. Um, specifically, again, if you go with a broad-breasted bronze, that is a straight-up, you buy the pole, you raise the pole, you butcher it. Uh, fish, we've done a lot on aquatics, but I think that you know a good garden pond does so much, and then fish are a byproduct. And my favorite fish to grow are bluegills, you know, green sunfish, red ear sunfish, pumpkin seeds. Basically, we call them in Texas, they call them perch. In Florida, they call them brim. Uh, in the Northeast, we always call them sunnies. I don't care what you call them. Yeah, I know they're not really perch. They're not like yellow perch, white perch, etc. I don't care. That's what, that's what they call them here. When in Texas, do as they do in Texas. Um, easy to get for free. Eat, they adapt to pellet feed. Fantastic eating. White flesh, good eating fish. Bullhead catfish are great as well. Specifically, harvest them when your water temperature is below 60 degrees and you get a much firmer flesh out of them. Uh, but you can grow tilapia, you can grow whatever you want. But I think fish definitely is something worth considering. Um, I'm not saying it's one of those things everybody should do. The biggest issue with fish on a small scale when you're putting in like a garden pond, a timber frame pond, Uh, even a small in-ground pond or whatever, is it's going to require an energy input for a pump. You're going to have to pump water. It doesn't have to be a lot of energy, but it's got to be continuous. And if it shuts off, you will have dead fish. So you need backup power to go with it. So this is one of those infrastructure things. Like we need to put the pond in. We need to make sure that we have some vegetation going on. We need to make sure we have a pump. We need to make sure we have at least you know a small portable generator that can run the pump if we're not, if the power is out, that type of thing. And then I think fish make a fantastic addition. And the aquatic system now can do a lot of aquatic vegetation that is edible. It can do aquatic vegetation that we can feed to our ducks or chickens and what have you. Um, and it brings in things like dragonflies that help with pest control, frogs, other amphibians. It is just wonderful, but it's so specialized that I would I would just refer you to other shows I've done on it. Um, but I just wanted to add it in because it's such a useful thing. Next up I have for you today I think is something that is still... Like, I have a little direct experience because my Uncle Pete was a pigeon guy. Uh, is pigeons. It's something I've always wanted to do and I've never gotten around to. And specifically, I would raise pigeons either in what they call dove coats, which are basically like big birdhouses up on a pole, and the pigeons just come and go from them, and or a coop system, a pigeon coop, where you have your birds and they have their nesting areas. And so the yield from that is obviously a meat yield from your coal birds and a meat yield from your squabs. Your squabs are your pigeons that are just about big enough to start flying, but they're not yet. And they, the thing about squabs is once you once you slaughter them, um, plucking them is easy because they don't have full flight feathers yet or whatever, whatever. You don't need a plucker. You don't need a scald. The feathers just come out of them by hand really, really easy. Um, the meat, meat yield of a squab is about twice that of a quail. Um, very tender because they've never flown. They've never run anywhere. The pigeons, when you build a system like this for squabs, they nest on a little shelf. They don't nest on the ground. They don't build a typical nest like we think of. They have a shelf. And if you give them, basically, think of it like an apartment, which means we've got this little area that's set up for a pair to pair up with. And you give them two shelves, they will make, they will start raising their second 
pair, it'll be one to three, but generally a pair of babies before the first one is quite ready to harvest. So you have an egg yield. Pigeon eggs are good. They taste just like quail eggs, which tastes just like little chicken eggs. So they're all the same, right? Um, and then you have that squab yield, and then you can have an, an adult yield. What's appealing to me about pigeons is they are kind of the ultimate um, in subsistence meat production. If you look at parts of the world where people do this stuff because they have to, next to the goat, and, and that has a lot of damage that it does, especially in desert and scrub desert communities, the number one thing that people keep for meat is pigeons. They even build systems where they basically have pigeons living in the roofs of their home. And they shovel up the pigeon crap out of basically what is an attic, and they use that for fertilizer. And the reason is the pigeon is basically a desert dove. It is designed to make a living on nothing. So if you build a pigeon system where you allow your birds to fly, they can get the majority of their food by going out and being pigeons, just like the wild pigeons that are out there right now. And in fact, that's the great place to get your stock for your pigeons. You can find a bridge or overpass that they're living on. You can go up there in the evening sometimes and just net the damn things. Or you can set up pigeon traps. You start feeding them. They'll go in the pigeon traps. Uh, I'll give you the easiest pigeon trap you can build. You build a box, and all around it you have chicken wire. The bottom is wide open. Across the top, you use a heavy-gauge wire. Put a grid on it. You want a grid that has about six-inch squares. So you just think it's just like, like tic-tac-toe. And you just hold those down with U-nails and take a little bit of like uh, stainless steel wire kind of wire them together for a little bit more support as they span the cross where they cross each other. Or you can use like um, the little hog rings uh, like you use on fencing with hog ring pliers, boom, to hold a few, you know, give a little extra support. And you find a place where pigeons are. You set it with the grid down. You spread some kind of, you know, cracked corn, sunflower seed, whatever, all around it. And you feed them for about a week that way. Where they can come in, they can go in, they can get out, etc. They eat around it, they sit on top of it, they crap on it, they go inside it, they become accustomed to it. After about a week of feeding them that way and you know they're using it, you flip it over so that the grid's on the top. The pigeons will come, they have no fear of this thing anymore, they've been in and out of it a hundred times, and they land on top of it, they crap on it, they look in there, and they look in and they realize... Oh, all the food's gone on the outside, the food's on the inside. They fold their wings, and they go through the, the square, the grid. Uh, now, they have to fly to get out, because you know, maybe it's two feet deep. So they can't just climb out. They have to fly. Well, when they fly, they open their wings, can't get out. Now you just go get them. Okay, now you have a wild pigeon that if you let it go, it's going to go right back to where it lives. That's what's cool about pigeons. Okay, so what you're going to do is you put it in your, your, your coop or whatever, you need to have like a fly area where they can kind of stretch their wings and stuff. If you're using coats, you just basically put a little cage on the outside of the coat, which again is like a big pigeon birdhouse. You can look up dove coat and you can see what I'm talking about. And just so that they can get in and out, they can poop, they can do their thing, they can be fed. And Or if they're in a big coop, then they just have kind of an area, like an exercise area, and you just keep them in there and you feed them for about three weeks. Within about three weeks of having all their needs met, if you open it up and set them free, they will fly away, they will go do their thing, and they will come right back, and you can start with wild pigeons, and you can do that.
So that's it's very attractive because you can always regenerate your genetics, regenerate your entire operation just by harvesting wild birds. And in most, I don't know every state, in most states they are completely unproductive, uh, unprotected. They are considered a vermin species. Uh, and even if you're not really supposed to collect them, like nobody's going to do anything. I talked to a couple guys here in Texas that are doing it, and they said that they do the whole you know, fishnet, basically, and they go up in the overpasses where they nest. They go up there at night, and the parents won't leave if they have a nest then at night, and they go up there and they net them. And the police came because they got a report, and the cops just left laughing at them like they couldn't believe they were doing it. So I'm not saying you'll never have any problems. I'm saying that in general you probably won't. So you have an animal that can be largely self-sufficient, very quickly trained to come home, Highly, highly productive and produce between five and eight batches of squab per pair per year. Really good yield, plus eggs, um, and largely takes care of itself. And building the infrastructure can be your only significant cost. They do need to be fed. They need to be fed enough that they know there will always be food at home. And once they do that long enough again, then home becomes home. If you stop feeding them at home, they may get to a point where since all we get at home is a guy stealing our babies, they may decide to go somewhere else. If you keep feeding them, they will keep coming back. Now you have the ability to reproduce and make more. If you start wild, you let them pair naturally. They figure out what they want. And once they're mated up, they stay mated up. It's really, really simple to do, honestly. Next up, bees. A lot of people overlook bees as livestock. They're probably the uh, the best livestock for uh, anybody who's willing to do the work that's necessary and doesn't have an over-exaggerated fear of bees. Uh, they are more work than you think, but they're not that much work. They're a bug that lives in a box. Uh, there's a lot of different diseases they can get. You need to have a bee mentor. I think anybody that starts keeping bees that's never done it, and just buys a bee suit and a smoker and some gloves and some bees in a box, and just starts doing it, is, is setting them themselves up for failure. This is something you need a mentor. The good news is beekeepers love to make new beekeepers. They like to make, they like to make new beekeepers as much as they like to split hives and make new hives. They really do. It is a passion that you either have or you don't. And once you have it, the main thing that you want to do, in addition to keeping bees, is make more beekeepers. Uh, they pollinate. It's a good thing for the environment, for more people to be keeping bees. And the honey yields can be pretty, pretty damn good. Uh, we had Rob Greenfield on a couple weeks ago, living 100% off the food he produces. Gets a huge caloric boost from his honey. So I think that they're a great animal. I wanted to mention them. But again, we're talking about something specialized. And you really should get a beekeeping mentor. And you will, if you look in your area, you will not have much trouble finding someone that will help you out and teach you how to deal with them. Um, you need to think about, like, if you have kids that have an allergy to bees, bringing three hives into a small backyard is probably not a good idea. You need to think about how it affects your neighbors. Uh, but these are all things you can work through with a mentor. But it's definitely one you consider. The last one, and I think, unless you live in a place where it's going to be really difficult, like I have, because ants... Uh, worms. I think that the, the homesteader's first and most useful livestock might be a worm bin. The, the beauty with a worm bin is it solves the, the composting cake paradox, right? 
What is the composting cake paradox? There's multiple ways to do compost, but the, the best way you can do compost if you're not involving animals is a process that will take 22 to 28 days. It involves turning and building stuff up, and you need about a cubic yard of material. When you start, everything has to go at, at the same time. You have your nitrogen-carbon ratios. It gets very, very hot inside. You get a wonderful breakdown and a very beautiful uniform compost. That is like it, the, kind of a gold standard. The other way is you just pile a whole bunch of crap up and leave it alone for over a year, and it takes care of itself. I like that method. You don't maybe get as super high quality of a product, but it's good. Okay, it's, it, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, the other is to use some sort of an animal for it. When people try to do the first method with not having a meter of material to start out with and they're producing small amounts of home waste and constantly adding it, they get into, again, the cake paradox. So what I mean by that is if we're going to bake a cake... We get our sugar and our flour and our egg and our water and our oil and anything else goes in the recipe for the cake. We mix it all up. It goes in the pan. All the batter goes in the pan at the same time. We set the oven at 350 degrees. We put the cake in the oven and we bake it for 45 minutes, whatever it is. And there's a procedure, and then it comes out, and it cools, and we dump it out of the cake pan. Maybe we test it with a toothpick, and we ice it, and we end up with a cake. We don't put the flour and the egg in, and maybe half the flour and half the egg in. Mix it up. Put it in the oven. Wait five minutes. Pull it back out. Put a little bit more egg and a little bit more flour, and now add the sugar and, a, and some of the, the oil for the fat, and mix it up again and put it back in. And then take it out and then add more flour and then some water and some more sugar and mix it up and put it back in. And if we did, or if you want to think about it another way, we don't get the cake even if we mixed it all up and put like five spoonfuls of batter in and throw it in the oven for one minute, pull it out, throw another spoon in, put it back in the oven, uh, pull it out, put another two spoons in. Like that's how most people are trying to make their compost. And it's, if you just pile it up and leave it, again, time heals all wounds that way. But if you're trying to turn it and mix it and you're doing this constant addition, you're trying to bake a cake adding little pieces and parts along the way. And whether you're baking a cake or baking bread, you know you're going to get a shitty loaf or a shitty cake, right, if you try to do it that way. That's why you get shitty compost results. If we have a worm bin, the worms do all the work. Remember, if you don't want an animal, you have to do the animal's job. So the job of composting is we have to store everything up, keep the material separate, put a big giant pile of it all together at one time, keep it certain level of moisture, keep it covered, turn it in four days, then turn it every two days, and all that crap, right? If we have a worm bin, we just throw the stuff in the worm bin, and the worm does everything because the worm knows how to be a worm better than anything else other than another worm. And we end up with these beautiful high-nitrogen worm castings, this worm tea that comes out the bottom that can be diluted and put onto our plants, and we end up with a system that's perfectly balanced, perfectly run the way nature does it, and we hardly have to do any work at all except remove trays from the worm bin or however we design our worm bin. So that's a big part of why I like worms. Now, in my climate, about the only way to do worms is to somehow build a system where the bin is on legs that are sitting in some vat of water And even then, eventually, fire ants will get in and kill all your worms and build a nest inside your worm bin. 
the fire ant problem we have here is that extensive. But there is hope. Do you know where I have lots of worms and no fire ants? Ebb and flow beds of my aquaponic system. And I started thinking that, you know what? You could build an aquaponic system that is primarily a worm system. Even if it just had one bed that you didn't really grow much in, and you just let worms be there. Now, you don't want a lot of fish in a system like this because now the worms are the primary source of waste. You're not going to get um, the, the, the worm castings the way you do from a worm bed, but you could have thousands and thousands of worms in one big ebb and flow bed. And what you're going to get then is wherever you have your solid separator solution, you're going to get that, that high fertilizer. You're going to get a liquid fertilizer. And you're going to have worms that can be fed to livestock, fed to fish, used to get fish out of a tank. How do, you know, how do I get my fish out of my ponds? I, I go to my ebb and flow bed, and I pull back some of the expanded shell until I see a, a worm flipping around. I grab his little ass, and I put him on a hook, and then I throw the line in the water and pull a fish out. Right, So there's a lot we can do with the worms beyond just making worm casting. So I want to throw them. I think that maybe... Most people might be better off when they start their homesteading with putting in a garden and a worm bed first. And do that for a year and build your infrastructure and plan your other animals and then bring them in. Some people want to move faster. You want to do all in one season. That's fine. But if you think about it, if you've got those two things in place, and we're going to kind of conclude this series with talking about designing the flow of the entire system based on your wants, needs, desires, and goals. Then you have that whole year to observe your property in a different light, even if you've lived there a long time, and think about, if I had chickens or I had quail, what would my life be like? And that leads you going into that next season, or maybe just the fall. Like if you start, everybody kind of gets started in spring, right? Winter, spring, maybe that fall, we've had that full season of gardening, and we want to have eggs. Let's say we want to do chickens. We want to have eggs by, by spring. Well, if we wait like everybody has till March to get our chickens, then we're looking at like September to get eggs, 22 to 24 weeks. But if we get chickens like late October, it's not too cold yet, uh, it's not real hot, we kind of are in the downtime, we're going through the holidays, that type of thing. By March, April, we got eggs from young birds that are in the top of their production so that we can make that work too. But thinking about that system through, and if we have that worm bed, we already have great fertilizer that we're providing for our plants. Now we're adding chickens to a system. We're kind of splitting the waste between them. Or maybe we go to rabbits, and now we already have the worm bed set up. So now the rabbit pellets, excess rabbit pellets, go right in the worms. Or we go to quail. Maybe we'll go to quail in the fall of our first season, right? So now we go to quail, and we start with our quail, let's say around October 1st, we have our babies. They're in a brooder for a little while. The little brooder stuff can go in the barn bin, but it's not a big deal. But by the time they're four weeks old, if we're going to do a rack system, they're in their hutches. And we are dropping the quail manure that otherwise would stink and be a problem. we we'll have to go in the cake-style pile right into the worm bin. See, the worm bin preceding everything else starts to make a lot of sense. Um, you know, if we're running chickens in a deep litter system and we don't have a lot of extra waste to feed our, our worms, we can go into that deep litter system, get a five-gallon bucket, 
fill it up with a straw that they've been pooping on and, and, and cutting up, and throw that into our worm bin. And, and run out and rake some leaves up off the ground, throw that in our worm bin. They'll eat the tea bags, they'll eat all the stuff the chickens really don't want. So, see, what I'm saying is a lot of people, by not seeing the value of the worm, we kind of miss this opportunity to make it kind of a keystone in our system. You just have to figure out, you know, does it work for you? Can it be outside? You know, you can do a worm bin indoors. You can do it in a garage. You can do it in a basement. They don't need a lot of light. They don't care. They don't really care for light. Uh, so there's a, a significant value there. And later we're going to talk uh, in this series about making some money off the homestead. It's a monetary operation as well when we're talking about worms. Anyways, go to our final thoughts on, on today's segment. Again, I want to reiterate that you shouldn't run out and get animals just because that's what homesteaders do. You should understand the animal's needs, its intrinsic characteristics, its inputs, its outputs, its waste cycles, its breeding cycles, how that all interacts with you, and then you should pick the right animals that have the right connections for the system that you're trying to build for yourself. And it's a totally different way than most people do it, and it's why there's so many damn people trying to rehome animals all the time. If most people took the approach we talked about today, they would get the right animals in the beginning, or at least they would be prepared for the eventuality of, I think chickens suck, so coca vin. What, coca, what is coca vin? I've talked about making it before, but coca vin is um, the French just being you know wizards with food. It was the French housewives' way of dealing with surplus roosters and old hens that were too tough to fricassee. You, it, it's a slow cooker method of cooking chicken with wine and some other stuff, and it's very, very good. And so if we have four hens and we've accepted the fact that, that some will die at our hands, and after a year we're like, you know, chickens just aren't right for me, the quail are working out better, the rabbits are working out better, whatever, okay, four chickens are going to freezer camp, and over the next couple months, every other week, we're having coca vin. And everybody's happy, and everybody knew it could be that way from the beginning. Instead, what we have is people in the paper, old chicken needs house, right? And I'm telling you, all you're doing is offloading your responsibility for ending that animal's life to somebody else. Because there's no place out there, that you know, like, like the chicken rescue, and you go there and there's like 9 million chickens being fed every day that are producing nothing. There's, there's Those birds, with chickens especially, that's why I'm harping on it, if they are dual purpose, they excel at nothing. They're either really great egg producers or they're really great meat producers. That's how chickens work. And if it's an egg producer and it's past its prime, it's, it's, it's a mediocre meat animal. You know? There are some other things they can do. A little, little announcement right now. We are expecting, yes, the Spirgo household ex is expecting. My wife and I are not making new names as far as children go, though. And my, my, my son and daughter-in-law are not expecting that way. We're expecting baby chicklings. What is a chickling? A chickling is when you have a little breed of chicken, like a bantam cochran chicken like we have, that are very, very broody. And you get a broody chicken, and she makes a little nest under a tree. You can't find her for a couple days. You finally find her. You're like, there you are. What are you doing? And you approach her. She's like, and she's all angry with you. She tries to be really big and brutal looking, and you're like, come on, you weigh a pound and a half. And so you pull her off, and she's very, very upset now and puffing up. And you look, and there's like four little bantam chicken eggs under there. And you go, honey, you don't have a rooster. Those will never hatch. So you get some duck eggs, 
and you put them under there, and she'll have baby baby ducks in about 25 days, I think. Now we have she's been on the eggs for like two days, so we will have baby ducklings. I gave her seven eggs. I'm hoping maybe four to five hatch. So that's something else about chickens is a lot of times chickens are better brooders if you get the right breeds, so you can use them for hatching other animals. So they can do that for you even when they're not highly laying eggs. But there will come a time in the life of any livestock where they are more valuable as being converted to freezer camp meat than they are for what they do on the homestead anymore. We need to be in touch with that, and then our lives will be so much better, and we'll go in this with the right mindset. So hopefully today's episode has been a good addition to this series. Uh, we'll be talking about a lot more stuff, producing materials, producing medicines, producing money, and cooking, and revisiting storage. And we're going to revisit storage from the concept of, well, we've made the food storable How do we cook it? And creating this integrated concept that goes back to one of the root tenets of TSP, from home to homestead. How do we take what most people see as an asset that's actually a liability because it's their biggest single expense and turn it back into an asset in that it provides for us and it provides more than four walls and a roof? That's what homesteading is all about. We can learn from the past Take advantage of the present. That's what the series is about. If you have input, thoughts, ideas for this series, send them to me. Jack at the survival podcast.com. As always, when you email me, TSPC in the subject line. So even if it goes into the trash folder, I will find it eventually and give it consideration. With that, let's talk about supporting this show. I try to give you guys a great show every day. I really do. Um, last week, I actually apologized for a couple episodes because I didn't feel like I was doing my best work. Uh, but I really always try. And for 11 years now, I have made that commitment to you guys that I've busted my butt to make this show educational and informational and, and entertaining. And if you want that to always be around, if you want to support us, easiest thing to do, become a member in what's called the Member Support Brigade. Sign up. You get great content in addition to what's available. You get every episode of the show ever produced. So all 20, 2,473 episodes in uh, download zip files, groups of 24. So you can have the entire library at your fingertips without individually going to get them. Uh, you get some other really great content. But the big thing is you get discounts that will more than cover the cost of your membership. So I actually think of the MSB as being free. Uh, for international listeners, it may not be as much. If you live in the United States and you do the stuff we talk about, and you just look at that thing like twice a month and make sure you're using the discounts you can get, there's no way you don't get your money back. And if you use CBD, I want to kind of point this out because it's just a really easy layup for you. If you use CBD products, we have a CBD-infused coffee, and we have a CBD oil provider and like, like ointments and stuff as well. One order of CBD may cover your year depending on how you use it, what you use it for, etc. Um, certainly, if it's something you order a couple, three times a year, it is profitable to be an MSB member on the CBD products alone. So I just thought I'd throw that in there. Uh, and, and you start looking at the other stuff, the, the plants, the seeds, uh, the shotgun adapters. I mean, there's tons of stuff. Uh, check it out. Consider becoming a member. Next up, just do your online shopping through tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Uh, that's where you can find all my reviews of Amazon products, but it doesn't matter what you buy. As long as you start there, you help support us and the work that we do, so it's painless. Today's item of the day is called Homemade Liquors and Infused Spirits. 
Uh, it is a fantastic book. Um, it is, you know, this is a book that pays for itself. So you, you pick up a copy of this book and you make one or two batches of what would cost you $30 a bottle liqueur, you know, using a $5 bottle of vodka and two bucks worth of adjuncts. And guess what? You've paid for the book. I use this book today for the item of the day, though, because I think it's one of the overlooked things about homesteading. We're going to talk a lot about medicines and plants and herbs in the future. We're going to talk about perennials and bringing perennials into this. What a great way to use a lot of these products to produce something that's infinitely storable like a liqueur. And let me tell you something, guys. On a really cool evening, we're coming out of winter, but we're not quite to spring. And the evening, you know, we have one of those evenings that's like 30 degrees. And nothing's in bloom yet. And you have a blackberry liqueur and a decanter that's, you know, 30, 40 proof, 20%, to 15, you know, 15, 20, 30% alcohol to 60 proof. And a little brandy snifter blackberries you grew in your backyard or you forged behind the park and you sit on the back porch you watch everything settle down and you have a couple sips of that at room temperature not cold it's 30 degrees out and that fresh blackberry that's two months away just became available to you on your palate right now and you know you made that yourself from what you forged or you grew it's pretty cool this book will tell you how to do it check it out again it's called Homemade Liquors and Infused Spirits by Andrew Schlaus. And it is just fantastic. There is a Kindle version. It is super cheap. You can read my review. I bought it because it was so cheap, I thought, why not? And Because uh, it sucks. This is just not a book you want in Kindle. This is a book you want the hard copy with your cookbooks in your kitchen. It can open up a whole new world for you. Check it out again. Homemade Liquors and Infused Spirits by Andrew Slosh. It's our item of the day. And everything at tspaz.com. And anything you buy, if you start there, helps support us. And if it's there, I bought it. I spent my money on it. I would do it again, or I wouldn't recommend it to you. That is my commitment to you. That brings us to our song of the day, as we are one day away from wrapping up Charlie Daniels Week. Uh, this was a song that I really loved as a young man called Still in Saigon. And as you might imagine, my view of war and the U.S.'s role in wars in the world have changed a great deal. My love for this song has not. This song is one of those songs about the Vietnam War that is neither idolizing it nor protesting it. It's just told from the viewpoint of what was and what, what, what is in the mind of men that have been through war. And the, the author of this, this song, the guy that wrote it, is actually not Charlie Daniels. The guy that's written music for others and ch several Charlie Daniels songs as well um, said that the war was really just, for him, the thing that happened to this character. But the song is really more about people dealing with things that have happened to them in their lives that have been traumatic that they don't know how to deal with. It doesn't only have to be war. He himself was not a veteran. Not just not a combat veteran or not even a wartime veteran. Like, never served at all. But the Vietnam veteran community really, really considered this song to be something very important. It, it told their story and it told their struggle. And most of the Vietnam veterans that I knew growing up, I wish they talked about their struggle. 
I wish they were open with what they dealt with. They were very silent, and they were highly admired. And the ones that you could even tell had a problem or two, it was just like, that guy's a great guy. And part, not the only reason, because I needed to figure out what to do with my life, right? And, and there was not a lot of opportunity for me. But part of why I joined the Army was just kind of a, well, all these guys, everybody admires them. You know, there were the World War II vets, there were the Korean War vets, and the Vietnam vets. Like, almost every man I knew, unless they were really young, you know, like when I was 14, let's say they were like 22 or something like that. Almost everybody I knew that was old enough to have served, served in one of those three wars if they were a man living where I lived in Pennsylvania. And you could almost tell that the ones that didn't, nobody looked down on them, but they didn't have that thing. They weren't a vet. So when you grow up like that, it's really easy to think like, well, they'll look at me that way when I came home. And I'll tell you, they kind of did. They kind of did. So it leads you to this place. And it, you, you don't think about the fact that there's some people that have a totally different view. In this song, one of the lines in it is, my younger brother calls me a killer. And my daddy calls me a vet. But you don't question. You don't question things. This song causes you to question things because it makes you see the other side. Not from like a protester standpoint, but what it does to people. You know, there's a song that I was brought up, in this song it says, I was brought up differently, I couldn't break the rules. And that's right after he said he could have went to Canada or stayed in school. And that, that patriotism, etc., But don't you have to look back at this war now and realize that we lost? You can try to paint it any way you want. We lost. We came home. South Vietnam fell. We backed a regime that was corrupt as hell. We, I mean, if you look at the history of the war, we backed a regime that was corrupt as hell in South Vietnam. We did everything wrong. We knew the war was lost 10 years before we finally had the good sense to get out of there. We learned that in the Pentagon Papers. Were the people that didn't go through some form of protest really the ones that were wrong? We want to write them off, call them draft dodgers or whatever, but were they really wrong? What was the purpose of going over there and having your mind screwed up, your body screwed up, or dying when we weren't going to win that war ever? And we were backing a corrupt, corrupt regime. Because we were fighting the commies? That's how they sold it, isn't it? This song makes you see that reality, but you only see it if you want to. You can see this as a song that makes these men into heroes. You can see this song that makes these men into victims. Or you can see this song much more broadly of a story of what happens to men who are sent to war. And how they can feel like the only place I really knew who I was was back in that place that I wanted to get out of. Not because it was a good place to be, not because they really want to be back there, but because what was what happened to them is such that they can't feel like they belong anymore. I've talked to people in our current endless war who tell me I was in, I got out, couldn't adapt, and I went back. And when I went back, my first thought was, what the hell have I done? It seemed like such a good idea until I did it. And some of those people had really hard times adapting. 
it is time for us to learn from the mistakes of the past. It really is. I don't think the state has any interest in that, though. This song can be a window into it, however you want to see war. I just ask that you listen to it today with a little bit more nuanced and broad view of taking one side or the other and simply seeing through the eyes of those that had to do the things that they were sent to do, whether they wanted to be there or not. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Tell me.